Our scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. You can find it on page 722 in your pew Bible. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. It is? Now, okay, be seated, be seated. Uh, Craig, do you still have your thumb in your Bible? Okay, what's the very last verse, verse 8? What does it say? And this, this, is, this is Easter. Come on back up here. Come on, read, read verse 8. Just verse 8? Just verse 8. This is the very ending of it. Okay, go ahead. Listen to this. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Anything else? Which begs the question, say what? Uh, What a strange way to end the gospel. Uh, It's the greatest news ever, and and that's how Mark ends. Now, if you've got a Bible, open it up. If you've got a pew Bible, uh, page 722, it's just a weird ending. Uh, It's the greatest news ever, and these women are struck silent and running in fear. We like our Bible stories to end with a bang. You know, you've got the parting of the waters where the Israelites can can cross, and they're saved from the Egyptians. You've got Elijah calling uh, fire down from heaven, defeating the prophets of Baal. You've got uh, David decking Goliath with, with his slingshot, right? You've got, got the, the, the walls of Jericho crumbling down. I mean, you hear something like that, you get pumped. And you sing a song and you go home happy. But this ending, some people call Mark the uh, black sheep of resurrection accounts. Because, again, you go to Matthew and Luke and John, and it highlights the joy. And has all these great appearance accounts. Mark, well, <laughs> seems to highlight the fear highlights fear. You know, the angel comes along, (laughs) as angels do, and says, don't be afraid. I I am convinced that angels vie for the opportunity to come down and freak out humans by saying, don't be afraid. I think they love that. Um, Seems like they always are saying that. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. I think they get a kick out of that. But I want us to look at that final verse that Craig read so scandalously. Look look, look at verse 8 there. 
Okay, the women fled from the tomb trembling and be- he piles on these words like trembling and bewildered, said nothing because they were too frightened. The women fled from the tomb trembling and bewildered and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. All these heart-pounding words. And it ends with because they were afraid. Now, it was written originally in Koine Greek and, and like most any other language, Koine Greek can take license with bad grammar sometimes if it helps drive home a point. And, and Mark does just that right here. If you take this last phrase in here, literally in the Greek, it says, they did not say nothing to nobody. That's what it says. Literally, I'm not making that up. Look it up in the Koine Greek. I ain't saying nothing to nobody. That's what it means. They were trembling and they fled and, and, and it isn't that the women's fear is irrational. It wasn't. It's just that for some, that's not a good place to end the story. That's not a good way to run a resurrection account, right? So some people have tried to, tried to I don't know if I've ever talked about this here, fix it. Have I ever talked about that here once, maybe nine times? You know, because we're a fix-it kind of church. We're problem solvers. We're successful at that kind of thing. But sometimes we're too fix-it. But some people want to fix this passage. And the, by the way, if you, if you haven't, in the marvelous, marvelous African-American preaching tradition, oftentimes an African-American pastor will be preaching and kind of be building up the conflict and the ambiguity and the lack of resolution to some story. Like, let's say, the storm at sea and the water's filling the boat and the disciples are all frightened and everything. And finally, the preacher just keeps building up the conflict and somebody out in the congregation is ready for resolution. So they'll stand up and say, fix it, fix it, preachers. But that's what it's talking about. Well, people here wanted to fix this passage. And that's exactly what they attempted to do. They were troubled by the ending. Now, if you look at page 722 in your uh, NIV Pew Bible or your own uh, Bible, it ends at verse 8, and that is where Mark ended it. But there are, does it say something like another ending or an alternative ending or another old ending? Actually, there's one ending and then another alternative ending. And the second one has the snake handling account and everything. Problem is, these were written some 300, 400 years after Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. People tried to, to gussy it up a bit, make it a little bit more palatable, a little more triumphalist, if you will. And they didn't need to. Mark affirms the resurrection. He just ends it with the women being afraid. Now, again, part of this is you have to understand John Mark as the gospel writer. John Mark is, a, is the bottom line guy. <laughs> what is the gospel that doesn't have the birth account of Jesus? Well, well John doesn't uh, for different reasons, but Mark doesn't have any of the birth narrative. He doesn't have resurrection accounts. He's like, I'm going to leave that to everybody else. My concern is the three-year ministry of Jesus after John the Baptist announces him, and he's baptized and tempted, and then he starts his three-year ministry. The rest of the stuff, fine. I'm just not interested in that. I want to focus on the three years. So that's what he does. It's like, I'm going to let the other people talk about the appearances. But people did, many, many years, centuries later, add some stuff to it to try to pretty it up a bit, tie it up in a nice bow, fix it. And, and the thing is, to, to the credit of, of biblical scholarship, they still have to acknowledge some of the manuscripts have this additional ending, but it doesn't belong there. No, no scholar worth his salt says, oh yes, they belong in uh, the biblical canon and Mark wrote it. No, he absolutely did not. But they, they have to say that as a matter of uh, integrity and scholarship. Okay, the ironic thing is though that 
we might prefer it to end this way. Let's just say, though it's not the case, that Mark really doesn't affirm the resurrection, which he does in this passage. But let's just say he doesn't. Because without the appearance accounts, this could be a little more comfortable for us. Now, why is that? Well, let's suppose Jesus really is dead to this day, and he's still rotting and decaying in the cemetery, and he's, you know, shut up inside uh, this tomb that's sealed with a stone. Suppose he's really dead. That's nice and fixed. It keeps him nailed down, if you will. It'd be so much easier if we could just admire Jesus, you know, being a good guy who meant well and taught some nice philosophical things, and then he just died. And then you and I could just tip our hats to him out of respect. But we, you see, we can control that. We can kind of keep him nailed down and fixed, but that's the problem. He's out. He's out, and he's already waiting for the disciples of Galilee, and now it's spread everywhere. It's spread everywhere. Why? Bottom line, all this really happened. All of this really happened. The way I like to put it, well, I, I, I doubt you've ever heard this account, but, but I used to have a student named Mike, and some of y'all know where I'm going with this, don't you? had a student named Mike, and he would, I was unwise, and I gave him my uh, phone number, and I'm going to abbreviate this. I think I might have told this once or uh, a dozen times, but... Uh, uh, you know, he started texting me, he broke up with his girlfriend, you know, so okay, and I would text back something seemingly pastoral or spiritual, and, you know, and then, oh, I got a flat tire today, oh, well, let the wind of the spirit, do the, I don't know, and then, you know, oh, I got an F in, in my, you know, geometry class, well, there's more to life than, you know, and doing that kind of thing. But after a number of days, I just got worn down, and even pastors have their limits <laughs> as far as pastoral intervention. And uh, so he texted me about something that I thought, oh, how trivial and everything. And I, I wasn't thinking, and I just typed in two words. And before I really thought about it, I hit send. It was two words. Anybody want to take a guess on what, what they were? Tombs empty. Okay, have I told this? Yeah, okay. Yeah, tombs empty, and I regretted it until... He texted back and was like, oh, that's great. Bah, ha, ha, that's so great. Yeah. So to this day... I still get texts from Mike, especially when bad things are going on, and I'll say, hey, I broke up again, but tomb's empty, and I'll still get those, and I still get tomb, I get more tomb's empty texts than any other form of text now, which is kind of fun, but that's the point, tomb's empty. Now, where am I going with that? Well, ancient Jewish polemics, those were writings by Jews who were trying to refute the resurrection, and all, every early Jewish polemic that we've ever historically unearthed or found in whatever fashion or form, every one of them presupposes the empty tomb. Do you get that? Those who were closest to uh, an antagonistic view or an adversarial position on the resurrection nevertheless themselves acknowledge, yes, that the tomb in reality was empty. And others have tried to offer some really lame arguments like Jesus fainted on the cross and was revived in the cold and and damp tomb and just walked out somehow with the hundred pounds of of myrrh encasement that they were carrying, that he was carrying with him. Some say that they stole the body, which really seems uh, unrealistic when you had the Roman custodia who were like green berets uh, guarding it. Some people think it was a group hallucination, which is scientifically untenable. Uh, my favorite uh, uh, is by, there's a group called the Jesus Seminar back in the 1990s, 
And it was a group of, uh, uh, how would I say, a group of what I would call self-congratulating scholars who would get together in their ethereal, uh, uh, esoteric world up here, and they would have these different colored marbles and determine with each verse what Jesus said or did or did he not and everything, and somehow they were the guardians of that. Uh, really impressive. But... Um, uh, that what they decided was that the disciples uh, were so caught up in their grief that they fantasized Jesus's resurrection, and they decided to just kind of go with that. <laughs> they just closed their eyes real tight and imagined real hard that he actually had been raised when it really had not occurred. And I just want to say thank you, Jesus Seminar, but the disciples were not that creative. Uh, they couldn't do it. <laughs> Uh, you have people like Simon Peter. You don't get this ideal fantasy of a bodily resurrection out of the brains of a guy like Simon Peter. You just don't. The tomb is empty. It's much more difficult to refute that, and we could talk about that. I've preached about that before, but that's what can throw us off, though, for those of us who think, well, maybe that is true, or I do believe in that. It can strike fear in you and me. Why? Because of what it demands of us. If it really is empty, it'd be a lot of easier if the tomb was still occupied by a dead and decaying body. We'd prefer, it's like we'd like to have Easter, we'd like to observe Easter but still have history as if it was still Monday Thursday. Does that make sense? We'd rather, we'd rather just kind of celebrate Easter Sunday but we want reality to be back on Monday Thursday. It'd make life simpler. It'd keep him nailed down. But the problem is, he rose. But we'd rather not let Easter rock our world, but that's what it does, and that's what we're supposed to be a part of. It's our calling to join him in turning the world upside down. It is scary to share the gospel in this world. And I think that's at least part of why the, the women were afraid. Not just, no doubt, they were startled. Imagine walking into a mausoleum and there's some person there saying, hey, that person you buried isn't here. I think also, though, uh, the angel was careful to say, don't be alarmed, don't be afraid, because what, what does he say after that? Well, think about how outnumbered they were, first of all. Uh, look at this. After Jesus' ministry, according to Acts 1.15, there were 120 firm believers, okay? 120. Now, think about that. And I even think about the Passover uh, weekend when Jesus died and rose. <laughs> there were three women Amongst two million, according to the historian Josephus, who were there for the Passover festival. Three women who had this weird news, who were perceived as inferior because of their gender, and they're going to go <laughs> dare to tell people that this guy rose from the grave. End of the first century, according to Roman historians, there were 70 million Roman citizens, roughly roughly 40,000 Christians, roughly, which, which if, you, if you brought down the math, it'd be in a town of 7,000, there'd be four Christians. Talk about outnumbered. And even today, you might be outnumbered, maybe in a missional context, and it can be uncomfortable and sometimes even scary. Or even here in the buckle of the Bible belt, at points in a given circumstance, in a given situation, you might feel outnumbered. And you might be fearful of actually saying, you know, this is where I land on this story of Jesus. This is where I stand on this matter. Here's what I think because this is what Jesus says about it. And there have been times it's been a little scary for you. And yet we're supposed to be a part of his story of turning the world upside down. It'd be nicer just to regress and put Jesus back in the grave and nail him in. Shut him in. Seal it shut. But we can't. 
Mark is saying that, yes, Jesus is risen. And, yes, it's scary because you've got to go out and tell it. It's the best of you news, but we're kind of hesitant to do that. But that's what we're called to do. Through our own living and dying for Jesus, we, in a sense, are helping to end the story. That's the last thing we need to be thinking about this morning is we've got to end it. We've got to work toward ending it. The biggest error that we can commit as we read this passage is seeing it as a scary ending to the story. Because Mark, first of all, affirms the resurrection in that very account. But don't see this as the end of the story. Mark did not want this to appear as the end of a story. That's why I think he didn't want to wrap it up in a pretty package with resurrection appearances. He would say, this is the beginning. I like the way Lamar Williamson, a wonderful biblical scholar, puts it uh, in his commentary on Mark. He said this, when is an ending not the end? When a dead man rises from the tomb? Mark's ending is no end. Only the reader can bring closure. We must decide how the story should come out. We must decide that. And Christ followers have been writing endings to this story for 2,000 years, and now it's our opportunity to do it. It started with a band of 120 believers, and it's still happening. And we've got to be a part of that. We can't be like the people who are, ain't going to say nothing to nobody. We've got to get out there. So why did the Easter angel say to the women, don't be alarmed, don't be afraid? Well, you're going to have to go out and tell this. You need to go out and tell this. And that's another reason, because he says to the women, well, let's look at verses 6 and 7. He says, the angel said, don't be alarmed. Okay, you're looking for Jesus. Basically, he says he's risen, right? What is the next verb here? Now go and tell. Don't be alarmed. Really, the word there is better. Don't be afraid. Now go and tell. Go and publicly proclaim that God wins. Go and publicly proclaim that Jesus is raised. That's what you're called to do. And do it without fear. Do it without hesitation. It's the best of news. Why not share that? Uh, See a few college students here who grew up here who Uh, came back from, they basically gave up a spring break vacation and went to Guatemala uh, to minister uh, with uh, Casey and Simeon uh, Sankul with some very, very neglected kids there, had an incredible experience from what I understand, and and gave that up. And it's just so amazing, you got college students who get it, and it's like we're called here more than anything not to go on a spring break vacation, but to go help end this story that Jesus began with the resurrection. Or I think of my student a student named Jacob Payne who led, uh, at, during our spring break this time, uh, he led a mission uh, team to New York City to an area called uh, Jamaica Heights. It's in the Queens area. Any of y'all ever been to Queens in New York? It's called, I think it's called Jamaica Heights. And it's the most um, pluralistic, most diverse uh, neighborhood uh, in New York City. And he said, you just you meet every manner of ethnicity, uh, religious persuasion, uh, every nationality, just whatever he said. It's all packed in there. And he, Jacob's just the kind of guy, he likes to go and just share the gospel verbally. You know, it was an audible event originally for the first 30 years of the church at least. And, and he and these guys would just get up, you know, and, and, and do kind of walk, walking around faith and sharing the gospel with people. Sometimes doing door-to-door and greeting them if they, if they prayed about it and thought it was appropriate, but they did that. Well, one guy they ran into was a guy named Mo, who uh, was from Bangladesh and, and, and happened to be a Muslim. And, and he said they had a very engaging conversation, and he wasn't an antagonistic kind of presence uh, the way sometimes people are. 
or they perceived them as an antagonistic presence. And so, you know, they had a good talk, but he wasn't persuaded or anything, so they were like, okay. And, and whatever this uh, ministry organization, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, they are really very much like when you're sharing the gospel, the thing to keep in mind is you're glorifying God. I mean, that's, that's why you're doing it. You're, you're glorifying God. You're hoping to reach people for Christ. But if you don't, at least you've been glorifying God. And, and bottom line, their strategy is if, um, you know, if someone is not really open to it, you do what the disciples did when they were out ministering two by two, and you shake the dust off your sandals, so to speak, and you move on. But at least you're giving God praise and glory by doing this. Well, that was the case with their friend Mo, whom they had gotten to know, but, but it was interesting. The next day, even though they had a lot of other things going on, there was one guy that said, I feel like I'm supposed to go back and, 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 and talk to this guy. And, and they were like, no, we got these other commitments to keep. And all this was a young guy. I think he's about Jacob's age, a junior in college. And said, well, y'all go on ahead. I'm going to go back and talk to him. So he went back by himself, which I think could be rather <laughs> scary. Uh, long story short, later on, they got a text from Mo, and he said, hey, uh, I've decided to give my life to Christ, and I'm talking to my friends, and I'm going to brace myself and talk to some of my family members tonight about it. Wow. That's pretty cool. And, and again, I love a group like that for whom, you know, originally the gospel was an audible event, and, and they're, they're living it out in that manner. And, and, and I think, golly, now Mo, it's his calling to help finish, to end this story, and what an amazing way he might do it, but it's going to be very scary for him, my, my guess would be. But that's what we're called to do, you and me and Jacob and Mo and everybody else. We're called to end this story, to be a part of that. And the cool thing is, you know, the empty tomb is the beginning of a story that you and I get to end with Jacob and Mo and these others. And one day, the great thing is Jesus will end the whole story. Some of y'all already know that, uh, you know, in the last 24 hours, we've had two tragedies uh, in our church. Uh, Susan Womack, uh, who sings in the choir in the first service, she and Greg have been longtime members here. Uh, Abby and Ann, their, their kids grew up here. Uh, Susan's father died very unexpectedly yesterday. And then uh, we heard this morning uh, that uh, Gil Franks, uh, Gil oftentimes plays in the band here, got the beard and everything, and uh, Vicki, his wife, sings often as well. Uh, their son, Zach, was killed in an automobile accident uh, just a number of hours ago. And um, uh, Gil and Vicky are shaken, as you could imagine. Uh, uh, I've spoken with them. Blake went over to see them during the first service. And uh, some other folks who are lay people here have been great already at reaching out to them the way they need to be reached out to. But um, I needed to reread this passage <laughs> Uh, and, and obviously I want you to be in prayer uh, for those two families, the Womacks and the Franks, but I thought, you know, I'm so grateful that I still get to be a part of this, of ending this amazing narrative, which is God's, because ultimately the ending is, is so amazing. Uh, free of death and grief and disease and warfare and division and anxiety and depression, uh, free of, of financial concerns, free of everything that causes us to have layers of pain within ourselves. It's that place of perfect peace, perfect justice, things being set right. That's the greatest end to all things, and we are heading that way, but in the meantime, you and I have the blessed privilege to be a part of that. So let's help end it.
together. Christ is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Lord, as we begin our prayer, we do pray for Gil and Vicki amidst this very sudden and traumatic loss. We know that right now they are just numb and not knowing which way to turn. I thank you for those uh, lay members here who have already been reaching out to them and giving them some practical help. We pray that we would continue to do that. We pray that ultimately um, the service that they have for their son, Zach, uh, will be a source of um, hope for them, a source of comfort. We just ask that, that we can continue to hold them close to our hearts in prayer in the days to come. We also lift up the Womacks who have been here for so long and are such marvelous people. And be with Susan especially amid the loss of, of her father. Uh, grant them your comforting hand as well. And grant them the remembrance of the reality, not just of the empty tomb, but that they still have the purpose toward which we are all moving, which is to serve you, which is to be a part of this incredible story. It is a mystery as to why you even cared enough to let us be a part of it, but you did. You showed us most ultimately through your son's death on the cross and his resurrection. It is the best of news. And we pray that in those moments when we might see faith as a scary thing, particularly when we might be taking a stand for the justice that your son preached or the sacrifice that your son preached or the way that we treat one another as he preached. Help us with authentic courage to stand for him and with him in the ways that we need to to help be a part of the ending of the greatest of endings. We thank you for this time together, O oh God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, we're going to stand and sing. And as uh, we stand and sing, go ahead and stand. And we'll have uh, an invitation. And if you feel led to make some kind of public commitment, we had a young lady in the first service make a profession.